0: Welcome back to What is California, a new podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. On this episode, we welcome Karina Longworth. Karina is the creator and host of the hit podcast, You Must Remember This, which chronicles untold stories and scandals of 20th century Hollywood. She's also the co-host of an awesome new podcast called Love is a Crime with Vanessa Hope. And she's the author of the book Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. From uh, all of these distinctions, you might gather that Karina knows a thing or two about Hollywood and the movie industry. And that is true. Part of why I wanted to have Karina on the show is because, you know, Hollywood and by extension, the film industry itself, Over the years has almost been synonymous with California. In many ways, the film industry is what made Los Angeles in particular what it is. It's the reason L.A. exists at all. So I wanted to talk to Karina about the film industry in California, especially old Hollywood, and how Hollywood has sort of influenced our perception of California, or at least guided Our perception of California, both in the past and the present, and how it might guide that in the future. It's so interesting to talk to someone like Karina about Hollywood and California more generally, because one of the topics we covered was the ways that outsiders perceive California. And Karina argued that perhaps Silicon Valley is the region that kind of dominates the perception of California, the ways that people think about California, the tech industry more than the film industry, more than Hollywood. I found that really interesting. So we're going to unpack that a little bit in this conversation. Karina is a native Angelino, and we did talk a little bit about her upbringing there. One of my favorite (laughs) sides in this conversation is that Karina didn't have a driver's license until she was 30. So she grew up taking the bus around Los Angeles. And we talk a little bit about how That dynamic and that view on Los Angeles shaped her understanding of the city from the actual culture to the geography and everything in between. So I've known Karina for a very long time. She and I were peers when we both covered the film industry and movies back in New York City in the mid to late aughts. And then she came back to Los Angeles around 2010 for a job as a film editor of LA Weekly. And she'll talk a little bit about that as well but it was great reconnecting with karina her podcast has kind of changed the way i view not only hollywood as an institution and as a as a myth really but also podcasting as a storytelling form and if you haven't checked out you must remember this you know even if you're not really into classic hollywood or those movies it's just a transcendent and transporting piece of craft the writing the narration, the storytelling, it all just really takes you to these eras when Karina is telling these stories and the subjects, the figures, the scandals, the dark humor, the colorful rendering of these people's lives and the sometimes tragic ways that they unfolded for good, bad, ill, and otherwise. I just find it all just totally fascinating. It is great to see Karina And her podcast find the acclaim and the platform that they have because few people you'll meet are as good at what they do as Karina Longworth is at her work. And thanks to that work, we know a lot more today about Hollywood and by extension, California, than any of us did when Karina started. As if you must remember this weren't enough, Karina has another podcast, this one with Vanessa Hope, called Love is a Crime. This one chronicles the true story of Walter Wanger and Joan Bennett, a Hollywood mogul and his actress wife, respectively, whose life in the 1940s resembled something of film noir when Wanger shot an agent he suspected of having an affair with Bennett. Wanger and Bennett are the grandparents of Karina's co-host Vanessa Hope, so the whole thing's kind of a family affair. Wanger is voiced in this podcast, by actor John Hamm, and Bennett is voiced by Zoe Deschanel. It's uh, <laughs> it's intense. It's it's pretty crazy. Uh, I highly recommend it, and it's just another window into California's forgotten history. Uh, just a quick editorial note before we begin: this interview was recorded earlier this summer in July, so we've been holding on to it till now. Uh, there are a few references to dates that might seem a little bit anachronistic, but that's the context here. Uh, It was recorded in July, but everything's still current, everything's still topical and hopefully interesting. So let's get to it. Here is me with Karina Longworth. Enjoy. Karina Longworth, welcome to What Is California. Now, you and I have known each other for a while, since way back when we both lived and worked in New York. And one of the first things that I remember learning about you was that you were also or are also from California originally. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was born and raised in Los Angeles.
0: What brought you back to California from your days in New York?
1: I got a job at the LA Weekly, which was um, something I I, you know, really actually tried very hard to get, um, partially because I really needed a job and I I couldn't really find one in New York at that level, and partially because I grew up reading the LA Weekly and I had you Know probably a false sense of what it was, but um, a, a sense that was nostalgic based on the 90s, but um, it was sort of a dream job for me.
0: What do you mean a false sense of what it was?
1: Well, th- I got this job in 2010, so <laughs> it wasn't the same newspaper as it had been in, when it was really important to me from the years of like 1991 to 1998, and uh, newspapers weren't the same, the industry wasn't the same, being a film critic for. Um, an alternative print weekly, like, wasn't, you know, what I thought it was, was going to be.
0: Did you grow up reading all those movie magazines, uh, in addition to the LA weekly and film criticism, like kind of premiere and you new know, movie line and the rest of those?
1: Oh yeah, totally. Um, and you know, I think that today it's hard to believe that so many of them even existed, but back then, um, You know, there you could go to a a newsstand, which was also something that existed to an extent that it doesn't anymore. And there'd be a whole movie section and some of it would be obscure titles or foreign titles. But then there'd be three or four uh, magazines that were, uh, you know, pretty mainstream American publications.
0: How did those publications inform or influence how you thought about California at all or Hollywood, I guess, more specifically?
1: know that movie magazines did that as much as the LA times or the LA weekly. Um, you know, I, I didn't really need a a national movie magazine to kind of project Hollywood back to me in the same way that, um, the LA times was doing on a daily basis.
0: Do you remember the first time it occurred to you growing up in LA? Like, Oh wow. Like movies are made here. I, I live in this place.
1: No, I don't remember the first time because it was just always kind of part of my life Um, and not in a sense of my family wasn't in the industry and I didn't know a lot of people who were in in the industry growing up, but just this sense that like you live in the place where movies are made was always part of my life and part of my understanding.
0: Yeah. Do you remember when you knew you wanted to write about or work amid movies?
1: No. um, Again, it's also just something that where it always seems like maybe it seemed like more of a possibility for me than it did for other people because of where I grew up, but it was always one of a number of things that I was interested in.
0: Okay. So what part of California do you call home today?
1: I live in Los Feliz, which is um, basically in like just east of Hollywood.
0: What appeals to you about Los Feliz?
1: I really love this sort of general area of the Hollywood Hills and just east of it and just north of it. Um, I actually grew up um, just on the valley side of Laurel Canyon. Um, So it feels kind of familiar to me without being exactly where I grew up.
0: What has notably changed about California in your memory from when you were growing up there to the present day where you live now?
1: I guess I, I don't really have a sense of California as a whole. Um, I can just really sort of speak to certain neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Um, you can definitely feel the wealth disparity having grown. I, I'm very lucky that I'm, you know, financially okay, um, professionally successful and financially comfortable. Um, but certainly you don't really see have the sense of there being a middle class anymore um, and what you do see are are indicators of extreme wealth and indicators of extreme poverty.
0: What's your earliest memory of going somewhere or seeing something that alerted you to something unique about this place, at least as we kind of understand in the in the mythology of you know American life?
1: Well, I never really went anywhere as a as a kid. Um, I never really left California until I um, went to visit colleges to potentially go to colleges. So, and even then I only went to one place, which was Chicago. And that's where I ended up going to college. So I, um, I would say that when I, I moved to Chicago at 18, having never lived anywhere, but Los Angeles and for a brief time in San Francisco, um, certainly that threw California into a certain kind of relief. Um, and particularly the way that people who I met in the Midwest were from the Midwest perceived California and Los Angeles and Hollywood and, and perceived who I must be if I was from a place called Studio City. Um, but, you know, I would say the big sort of shock for me was just the weather. I had never seen snow before. I'd never been anywhere really cold and I had never lived in a, a city that was, a real metropolitan city, um, you know, San Francisco has aspects of that where it's walkable and there has sort of better public transit, but it's, um, it's nothing
0: like Chicago. Is that something you value? Like a walkable city, a more metropolitan city, as you say?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I wish Los Angeles was more like that. And I think that there have been inroads a little bit recently to make it more bike friendly and pedestrian friendly. Um, but it's, I think it's something that's sort of not really built into what the city fabric is in the way that it is in, in, you know, Eastern cities, for instance, like New York and Chicago.
0: It seems like when I read about development on transportation in Los Angeles, it seems like it's always there, this lingering kind of instinct to build that kind of infrastructure. And I don't know why that never happens. Like, do you have a sense of that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do. Um, I think it, it almost goes back to what I was saying about the income disparity and wealth disparity and how it just gets bigger all, all the time. Of course, it's always been there. And there's always been this sort of nimbyism of people who um, spend a lot of money for their homes and their property. They don't want you know, their area dug up for subway tunnels and whatnot. And so that, I mean, that's a battle that's been going on for decades. I, I grew up in Los Angeles, but my, for various reasons, my father wouldn't let me learn how to drive. So I didn't learn how to drive until I was 30. um, And I took public transit in Los Angeles as a teenager. So that, you know, kind of gave me a different experience of the city than a lot of people have, or at least a lot of, you know, white middle class, upper middle class teenagers have of the city. Um, And so it's certainly since the nineties when I was, you know, spending an hour and a half each way to school on the city bus, public transit has gotten a lot better in LA and, and there are certain neighborhoods where you can live without a car in a way that you couldn't 20 years ago. Um, but it is such a, a, it's a city that is still so dependent on, on highways and, um, methods of being traversed that, you know, are not accessible to a lot of people. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's can still be very, very frustrating.
0: In what ways did like the geography of the city or the layout of the city uh, influence you or impact who you became uh, when you were kind of riding the bus and riding public transit as a teenager?
1: You know, I do, I definitely have memories of just being on the city bus for long stretches of time, like to get to my my high school, which was in downtown Los Angeles, or, um, you know, sometimes just to have a social life, like I could get my dad to drop me off somewhere at 7pm. And then I would lie to him and say I was getting a ride home when really, I would have to take a city bus home at like 11 or midnight. Um, And so you certainly when you do that, and, you know, you are oftentimes doing that alone. You certainly see the city in a different way than somebody would like a 15 year old or 16 year old young white girl would see it um, in a car, either driving or being a passenger in a car. I mean, you get exposed to you know just more strangers than you would otherwise. You get exposed to different classes of people, different races of people. You see people who are um, disabled at a level that you wouldn't if you were in a car. Um, and then, in just in terms of the geography of the city, like I, I think I really came to understand, like how, for for instance, like how the valley works as a grid, um, and I I have a really deeply ingrained memory of like the exact order of certain streets, um, certainly like the streets that intersect with Ventura Boulevard all throughout the valley, um, and um, you know, I mean. There is something, I think, sort of romantic and cinematic about watching the neighborhoods change out the window. Um, and, it, you know, I definitely spent a lot of time looking out those windows, listening to music on a Walkman, and just sort of thinking about things um, in a way that you, you can't if you're actually driving.
0: Yeah, I love the way you describe it as cinematic, because I think of films like, you know, Los Angeles Plays itself, or even Magnolia. Um, That really focus on that breadth of not just the city, but its streets and its landscape, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I can only imagine, you know, if that's how that impacts a viewer when you watch those films you know, how that impacts someone growing up there.
1: I was definitely interested in those movies when they were coming out and I was kind of living through that experience of of taking public transit across large swaths of the city. And um, But now it's, I, I can sort of spot the cliches or things that became cliche or, or tropes, you know, like sort of helicopter shots of the freeway interchanges and all of that. Um, but then I think I, I had a, a romanticism for, This idea of living in such a vast place um, where there could be like interconnected lives.
0: For those who aren't familiar with your show, can you enlighten them? Tell us a little bit about You Must Remember This.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a podcast that claims to um, tell the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century um, and what that means in practice is generally that it's about the history of Hollywood, specifically in the 20th century. But usually, um, I would say from the beginning of the sound era through about uh, 1970, that I try to focus on stories that either haven't been told or stories that people think that they know, but don't understand or don't remember the complexities of so, you know, I might talk about somebody like Polly Platt, who was a production designer, screenwriter, and producer who had her hands in many classic movies, but um, whose work, sort of body of work had never really been considered as its own thing. Or I might talk about somebody like Marilyn Monroe, but try to um, just kind of show their work and their lives in a different light.
0: The Polly Platt season is so good. Oh, thank you. I love that season because... It is the California or the Hollywood that I grew up reading about. The the California, the Hollywood, and the the movie industry of my imagination. You know, I remember reading Premiere magazine and seeing those bylines of the folks you interview. I remember reading and knowing about Polly Platt. Last Picture Show is one of my favorite movies, so I'm very familiar with the relationship between her and Peter Bogdanovich, the director of Last Picture Show. And I just couldn't really get enough. I was kind of s- sad when it ended. I guess I'm kind of curious why you wanted to tackle someone like Polly Platt, who is someone who's more contemporary than virtually any or all of the subjects you've covered uh, in the previous years of the podcast.
1: Well, I've always been really curious about Polly's story. Um, I I think that one of the sort of first um, things that drew me to start reading um, sort of in-depth film history books was... I don't I don't remember exactly what year it was, but and I don't know if you remember this, but you probably do. If Last Picture Show is one of your favorite movies, Um, it had this big home video release back when movies could be put out on home video for the first time and like sort of that become an event. Um, And that was how I first found out about that movie. But it was also how I first found out about this love triangle that had happened on the set of it where. Um, Peter Bogdanovich basically left his wife and creative collaborator Polly Platt for the star of the movie, 20-year-old Sybil Shepard. And I just got, became fascinated with that story. And at first I became fascinated with, you know, young, glamorous Sybil. And then I became fascinated with the great auteur Peter. And then I was just always asking myself the question, how was Polly Platt able to continue working on this movie after like, her marriage imploded? Um, how was she able to continue doing her job as a production designer doing hair and makeup um, when she knew that her husband was having an affair with the actress whose hair she was doing? Um, so that had always been a question that I wanted answered. Um, and then I met Stacey Cher, who's a film producer and has become a friend of mine and somebody who I'm working with on other projects. And she had been really close with Polly and with Polly's daughters. And Polly's daughters had shared with her um, this unfinished, unpublished memoir that Polly had been working on before she died. And so Stacy, you know, just sort of casually was like, I hope that someday you get a chance to read it. And then um, it just got, kind of got to the point in 2019 where Polly's daughters really wanted to get their mother's story out there. And when Stacy found out about that, she connected me to them. So they shared the memoir with me. And then we just kind of went from there.
0: The um, memoir is kind of mind-blowing. Um, I don't know if the... Obviously, there probably wouldn't be much of a show without it. How did you come to have Maggie Siff read the, for the part of Polly Platt and have, have, have an actor portray that?
1: Well, if for people who have listened to my show before, you might have heard episodes where um, there might be things that a subject has said and I will sort of do a little bit of a voice, you know, reading their words. And that works if it's a few lines here or there, but it doesn't really work with the way that I wanted to tell Polly's story, which was in quoting huge swaths from her memoir, because the writing is so great and there's such a strong voice in it. And so I knew that I needed to have a voice that was different from mine for Polly's voice. And so I talked to a couple of actresses, but, um, Maggie would like, she, I actually connected to her through my friend, uh, the director Karen Kusama who had worked with her on billions and, um, Maggie just, you know, over the phone, you know, Right away, she seemed to really understand Polly's story and was fascinated by it, and and was excited about the challenge of playing the things in Polly's life that are less attractive and more problematic. Um, which is something that I think that not everybody I talked to was. Um, and she also didn't care about um, alienating some of the people that she could potentially alienate because you know Polly certainly was not when she was writing this. She was writing it as though nobody would ever see it and. So she wasn't very careful not to alienate people, and some of those people are still alive. Um, And Maggie was just really fearless about all of the things that um, would be required. And she was also um, at, you know, it was, we recorded it during the early days of the pandemic. I think it was, I think we're mostly recording in May of 2020, And so she was just in a situation where she was kind of with her family in a country house and she didn't have that much to do. And so she welcomed what this job would entail, which was kind of getting together on Zoom a few hours a week. Um, And it was sort of a creative outlet for her in a time when she didn't really have other work to do or other creative outlets.
0: Did you talk to or did you reach out to Bogdanovich for that episode or that series?
1: I didn't because I wanted to tell the story from Polly's point of view, because I felt that hadn't been done. Um, But my husband's friendly with him and his, you know, I was working with his daughters who were very much in touch with him and kind of, you know, he was very aware of the project and he gave it his blessing.
0: Do you know what his response or reaction has been? I don't. Do you want to know?
1: I don't, I wouldn't mind. Yeah, I wouldn't mind you know, talking to him about it Um, now, now that I'm done with it. I just didn't want him to influence
0: it. What has doing this podcast and sitting in those research libraries and doing this really in-depth study of classic Hollywood, what does that reveal to you about California more broadly? And I guess Hollywood as kind of a, a major kind of limb of California.
1: Well, I definitely think it's given me a, more of an understanding of of the I don't know what the word would be, the cosmopolitaning, the metropolitaning of Southern California. Um, you know, an, kind of an, a better understanding of the timeline of of how the city of Los Angeles grew. Um, of course, the film industry didn't start in Los Angeles and it was not the first industry in Los Angeles, um, but when uh, the film industry did start moving to Los Angeles and and kind of spreading around a certain area um, in the nineteen teens, it the city kind of grew with that industry, um, and so certain yeah certainly I had a I've gained a better understanding of that. Um, and this past season, I did a, about the gossip columnist luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. I got a much better understanding for the role of newspapers in the growth of the cities of California, um, the role of William Randolph Hearst and the Chandler family. Um, And uh, I was definitely one of the big surprises in in writing about these gossip columns. Uh, Gossip columnists was how their work and their careers were so knitted into the fabric of, of these papers that were the um, the creations and or the kind of fiefdom of, of these very powerful men who use these newspapers, not necessarily to report the news, but to further their own um, mostly economic interests. So um, and then, you know, I mean, the Chandler family, like it's, you know, it's Chinatown. I mean, it, it, like the story of the Los Angeles Times is a story told in Chinatown about water and deceiving and exploiting, the the populace for the purposes of making a few men very wealthy.
0: So knowing the rise of the times and knowing the rise and the influence of these newspapers in Los Angeles in the 20th century, and then also being a firsthand front row observer of the decline of newspapers in the early part of the 21st century, what has that told you about the impact and the importance of newspapers? in California and that maybe the necessity to save them if, 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 if at all, if it's, if it's even possible.
1: Well, speaking only for Los Angeles, I, I mean, I've just had over the past six months, a year of, of doing the research on the Gossip Girls, I've come to understand the history of the Los Angeles Times much better than I ever did and and the sort of historic corruption of the paper. You know, there were a few good years. <laughs> there were a few good editors and there, there was um, some times when they were doing great journalism, but they certainly didn't start out that way for a lot of the 20th century. That was not the case. And then I would say that over the past at least 10 years, um, you've sort of seen special interests creep in to all newspapers, perhaps, um, certainly the Los Angeles newspaper, certainly the paper that I used to write for the LA weekly was, um, bought and given a a complete ideological makeover. Um, so I, I don't know that I don't know that I'm at all wedded to newspapers as, a, as a, a form of media and I think the more I understand about the history of them specifically in Los Angeles, the less I feel like it's something that needs to be preserved. but I think that news needs to be preserved and and unbiased journalism needs to be preserved and I, I think the state of journalism is pretty sad in general and then the state of, of entertainment journalism and movie journalism is, you know, perhaps broken beyond repair.
0: Why do you say that?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, again, like something that has, I, you know, try to express in the Gossip Girl season is just the extent to which what we've called entertainment news has not often been actual news. It's often been a parallel series of narratives created and sanctioned by the film industry you know it's it's like the narratives they tell in the movies but just in a different form um and so that's always been a problem you know we were lucky at certain points in time to have real critics who um were not uh sort of financially tied to the studios and sometimes there have been real reporters who are not um basically junket reporters. But they are, I would say, few and far between today. And the grand majority of coverage of movies um, is done for access.
0: Who are some of the Californians or Los Angelinos whom you've met or encountered during the course of making this podcast who've really stuck with you
1: when I was working on the Polly Platt season, Rachel Abramovitz was a really useful source. Um, she had written a premier magazine profile, a premiere, I think. She'd written a big magazine profile of Polly Platt in the 90s and then had become friends with her. Um, and so she was somebody who had really felt like Polly's story had never been told in full and that that was a shame. And so she shared quite a bit with me and just from personal memories to other contacts. And um, she's somebody that I've stayed in touch with a little bit. Another person uh, would be Toby Rafelson, who I also met on that project. She she had been married to Bob Rafelson, but like Polly, she had also been a production designer who worked on her husband's movies. And then Forged her own career after her marriage to Bob Rafelson ended. And she is in her 80s and she's still alive and she still lives in the house in Beverly Hills that Bob Rafelson bought with his money that he made creating the monkeys. The house is um it was built in the 1920s, and then they bought it in the 60s and had sort of like like 1960s Hollywood drug paradise there. Um, and then when their marriage ended in the 70s, she kept the house. And she lives there with her current partner, who was an artist, but the house has sort of fallen into disrepair. And, um, it has, it just, it feels like sort of a crumbling tombstone to certain ideas that we might have about the sixties and seventies in Hollywood. And, and it's, that was definitely an experience that imprinted a lot on me. And I I really value Toby a lot as a person.
0: I want to read that story.
1: I I've tried to sell Polly's story as a book completely unsuccessfully. Um, but there's been a little bit more interest in the idea of doing a group biography of a few women in that situation. And, um, if I was to do that, then Toby would definitely be a big part of the story,
0: you know, in my experience, it's always seemed like a lot of people who are not from California tend to conflate or confuse the idea of Hollywood, and I'm putting square quotes on Hollywood with California. you know, and that's whether it's the idea of Hollywood or the mythology of Hollywood. It's in a lot of people's eyes, synonymous with California. Have you encountered that too?
1: I definitely did when I first moved to Chicago in 1998, but I was mostly encountering that from stupid people that I went to college with, (laughs) um, you know, like every now and then I would think that comes up, but I think, I think people generally that I talk to are a little bit savvier now, um. And also, if they are going to think about California as being one monolithic part of it, they probably would think of it more as Silicon Valley now, I think. Oh, you think so? I mean, I feel like Silicon Valley looms larger in the culture now than Hollywood does, but maybe I'm wrong.
0: I don't know when I visit New York or I talk to people in New York, they say, How's LA? And I don't live in LA. (laughs) I live in Northern California. I don't even live in San Francisco. It's like there's like two places, there's Silicon Valley or the Bay Area, and then there's LA, you know, and everyone assumes you live in Los Angeles if you're not from here. So there are times where it's kind of easy to conflate Hollywood and California. I mean, are they the same? I guess I'm asking, to what degree is. Hollywood's mythology, also California's mythology?
1: Well, I, I guess I've never really thought of it as being one and the same, but maybe it's just because I I did have the experience, you know, as a teenager of, of spending some significant time in San Francisco and came to understand Northern California as being a really different place. But um, just in terms of the podcast, I mean, I, maybe that manifests itself sometimes in terms of this attitude. And I would say mostly like pre-World War II, 20s and 30s, America, when there was this idea of going to the coast, and so going that usually that meant going to Los Angeles to work in movies because you were a New Yorker or somebody from Philadelphia or DC who was slumming, Um, and so like in that mindset, Los Angeles and California are all the same for sure. Holly in Hollywood is all the same.
0: You're married to the filmmaker Ryan Johnson, who has made or been connected to some of. Hollywood's biggest film for the last decade, um, Last Jedi, Knives Out. What is being on these sets or being married to a filmmaker showing you about that culture?
1: You know, I, I saw somebody on Twitter the other day talking about how um, a like in today's, there's somebody who's trying to become a film critic and in today's climate, they feel like nobody who is distributing movies really cares about people who don't live in Los Angeles or New York when it, comes to making movies available for people who live in other places to review. And I I think that somebody who lives anywhere can have a valid, educated opinion about a movie. And so they should have access to them. But when it comes to the film industry and how movies are made, I think it's really helpful to actually spend time with people who make movies or people who work in marketing or distribution. And to I think you can understand more by spending time with those people. And so when it comes to that kind of writing, um, I think it's helpful to have that kind of access and, and geographic access. Um, and so I have a much better understanding of how movies are made, how, like why they're made, what happens behind the scenes in terms of the business than I ever did when I was writing about movies.
0: In what ways has that of borne out in the podcast? Have there been any specific examples or instances?
1: I don't know that I would have been able to tell Polly's story in all of its complexity 10 years ago. And some of that is just me aging and kind of understanding her um, in a different way as I've become older and more mature. And part of that is understanding what production design is and how somebody can kind of put an imprint on a movie in their own way that is very important, even if they're not the writer or director of it. Um, And, you know, I mean, I just I also feel like the stuff that I have come to understand about the business of Hollywood circa now, um, because of my proximity to it, it doesn't really apply that much to the stuff that I talk about in history because the business has changed so much. But certain things about the fundamentals of filmmaking have not changed.
0: Like the scale is still there, right?
1: It can be, I mean, you know, some productions today are much bigger than any that have ever been made before, but of course they're different because of technology in some ways. And also the fact that almost nothing in terms of movies is shot in Los Angeles anymore is very different.
0: Do you ever see or hear something, maybe not on Ryan's sets, but do you ever see or hear something that prompts you to think that would be a great entry on You Must Remember This?
1: No. I don't think about um, contemporary stuff in the way that I think about stuff that I would be considering for the podcast.
0: Do you think about the podcaster like 60 or 70 years from now who might come back and see that and uh, <laughs> want to jump on it?
1: Um, No.
0: <laughs> I know you're away from California right now. Do you keep up on California news while you're away and like what's happening in the state and LA in particular?
1: Yeah, I have been um, somewhat... Mostly what I've been paying attention to right now is COVID um, and environmental stuff like fires and weather, um, which is all very disconcerting. (laughs) Um, I was talking to somebody who's a friend who I work with the other day over the phone. And and she was saying, you know, it just really feels like the end of the world. And it feels like it's gotten worse every day since you've left, Karina. (laughs) And I left on June 18th. So, I mean, that's not that long ago. Um, but I definitely get that sense just from looking at headlines and stuff. And um, yeah, it's it's troubling.
0: What do you think the biggest challenge is that California faces and how can it be surmounted?
1: It has to be climate, I would say. Um, and I'm not smart enough to tell you how to solve that one. Um, I don't know that there are easy answers. Obviously, there aren't because um, it just gets worse and worse, even though some people are certainly trying to Make a
0: difference. what do people outside California most misunderstand about the state?
1: Well, I think it's di- really difficult to really understand anywhere without having personal knowledge of it. You know, I mean, maybe th- one of the sort of problems in in public discourse right now is just that nobody seems to want to acquire knowledge about anything that isn't their own personal experience. Um, so I don't know that that's specific to California.
0: Do you ever Feel compelled to dispel those misconceptions and misapprehensions.
1: You know, one of the big projects with the podcast is um, trying to correct misunderstandings about movies and the history of movies and and celebrity.
0: I mean, you fact checked Hollywood Babylon. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's a a meta project along those lines for sure.
0: Well, Krina, thank you very much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that is the show. Karina Longworth, folks. Her shows, You Must Remember This, and Love is a Crime with Vanessa Hope are both available anywhere you get podcasts and I highly recommend them. They're amazing, she's amazing, and I am very grateful for her making the time to appear on What is California. And I am grateful for your listenership. Thank you so much for all of your support, all of your reviews, all of your subscriptions to the newsletter all of your sharing on social media and all of the good vibes that you have generated around the show. The reception has been awesome and uh, I just couldn't be happier. So thank you very much. What is California is produced, edited and hosted by me, Stu Banniersdale. Our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at What California. You can subscribe to the Substack newsletter, which is free at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That'll send you all the new episodes every Thursday and get you some fresh weekend reads. And those weekend reads newsletters contain 10 links to interesting news stories that you might consider in your own quest to understand the Golden State. You can support What is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. You want to chip in a few shekels to uh, keep the What is California cloud servers running and our headquarters cat fed. And of course, you can email me anytime at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What is California, I hope you'll rate and review What is California on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. I would be ever so grateful. So that is a wrap this week. Can't wait to talk to you next week. Until then, remember, keep your eye on the bear.